This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? The worldwide conspiracy has discovered there is an even bigger conspiracy. Yes, yes, no. Everything you know is wrong. Hello and never goodbye and don't look behind you, but it's me and I'm with you again to look at the arcane wonders of our wonderful world. Everything, Everything you, you know, know is, is wrong. 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 Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator. Voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, but your mind, and allow me to take you back on fourth through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. My guest, Matt Richtel, is a writer, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist, and the author of An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System, A Tale in Four Lives. Matt Richtel, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. This is a fascinating book, and I love the way you wrote this, like a story. And I'm wondering, why did you choose to write about the science of the immune system this way? Well, um, I guess part of it has to do with writing philosophy, and part of it has to do with the fact that I believe, above all, I have a duty to be interesting. <laughs> and the immune system, while it is so related to all of us could be exceedingly dry because it is deep science. And I believed that the way to make it accessible was to tell it through science combined with deep, ideally emotionally resonant narrative. And I guess you'll tell me if I succeeded or not. 
Well, for me, this book was a page turner. And many times during this, what I will call a story, I was making assumptions about where you were taking us in this story, where the story was leading. And I often discovered unexpected turns. I want to say that one of the pleasures of journalism as you get older and you really open yourself up to the experience of learning is that things do take unexpected turns. And this book took me on multiple unexpected turns, and I let the story go that way. Each of the characters in this book wound up a little bit different than I anticipated, and certainly the science of the immune system wound up going some different directions than I anticipated and disabused me of some mythologies, some misconceptions that I had fairly deeply held, despite, I suppose, I think I'm a fairly educated person. Well, that would be a great place to start. What were some of the misconceptions that you had going into this? Well, I guess my most basic misconceptions had to do with what the immune system is and how it functions. But there was also one, one really major misconception I had that's a quite, in one way, a small point, but in another way captures the essence of the mythologies I had. And that is, I always thought I was supposed to boost my immune system. I'd fallen for all that stuff, all those marketing things you see at the pharmacy, at the checkout aisle, at the grocery store that say boost your immune system. And it turns out that that is a crucial mythology I carried and I'm led to believe a lot of people share. So that is just one along with misconceiving the whole enterprise of the immune system. I have to admit that I fell for that misconception mythology about the immune system myself. And I would love for you to explain what the immune system actually is, yeah. what it does, and how it works. So I think the very best way to get at the immune system is to explain the environment that we and it function within. And what I have come to understand and, and reframe my thinking around is the idea that all around us, on the surfaces of the tables, on the, the steering wheel of your car, on the radio dial, on the newspaper or book, and certainly on your body and in your body are all kinds of microbes, bacteria, virus, parasite, all kinds of organisms. Now, it's really key to understand that, and it's really key to understand that most of those would do you no harm. Your body is populated with bacteria that aren't out to get you. So why is that important? Well, to step back to my misconceptions, I imagined the immune system was this thing that was trying to fight off every alien organism around and inside of us. I thought of it as a war machine. 
I don't know. Does that resonate at all with maybe something you'd picked up or heard or might think about? Or was I alone in that idea? Well, I've learned a few things about the immune system that we do have a lot of bacteria in our bodies and we even carry viruses and parasites and that many of them actually have a symbiotic relationship with us in our bodies. So I wasn't that far down that erroneous rabbit hole as you were, but I did have this sense that the immune system was engaged in the business of fighting off all these different things and that we essentially had to find ways to boost our immune system to be able to do that. Yeah, so you were a little better informed than I was I think where I have really been righted, and, and I do think even relative to what you've described as your understanding, we are learning much more, that the immune system, as much as it is a war machine, is a peace machine that is designed to find as cooperative or harmonious a way of engaging with the world around and in us and then, and only then, when it confronts something really noxious, does it do, and can it do, extreme violence, precision, nuclear-level violence. But it tries to do so, and this is very important, by doing as little collateral damage as possible to the outside world and to you. And that is why, to sum this up, I think of the immune system as being a combination of a bouncer and a ballet dancer. It has the strength and power of a bouncer, but it seeks to tiptoe as delicately and lightly as it might. And that is one reason I call this book an elegant defense. It is fiercely elegant. Yes, and it's also highly, highly complex in the way it, it operates and all of the different elements, molecules, cells, and processes that go on in the immune system within our bodies all the time. So this is another area where not only would we as lay people understandably be not fully informed, but the reality is that the reason the subtitle of this book is The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System is the immunologists themselves have had massive learning the last 20, 30 years about these complexities. And we are learning, uh, it's, it's almost not hyperbolic to say by the hour, day, and week. And the reason for that is that much of this is happening at the molecular level. When I say much of this, I mean the immune system that I think if I follow this conversation, we're getting a little bit deeper now into the weeds. And the weeds of the immune system are deep and complicated. And the molecules, as I say, were long invisible. We just didn't have the technology. So by way of example, there are actually two immune systems inside of our body, one called the innate immune system and one called the adaptive immune system. And here I'm going to pause and say, are we ready to go 
this deep into here? Shall I forge ahead, or does everybody want to take a quick nap and regain their uh, momentum before I continue? Oh, no, absolutely continue. My listeners are into the deep stuff, and, and that's where I love to go because I love this kind of science, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed all of the in-depth detail that you took us through, including the history of the, of the development of the science and the unfolding um, discoveries of the immune system and how it works up to present day. Well, I'm I'm really uh, I'm really grateful because I do a fair amount of these, and not everybody reads the book. The hosts say this is an amazing book. I plan to read it. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you in advance for taking the time. But let me tell you about the innate and the adaptive immune system. All of this goes to I should keep grounding this into both our daily health that we can control, and in the end to the extraordinary developments that medicine is making to assist us. Much of medicine is beginning to yield around our understanding of the immune system because we're realizing we can use the tools I'm about to describe or use the wisdom that I'm about to describe, the hard-earned science, to our benefit. But the innate and the adaptive immune system, okay. So I mentioned that there's all these molecules and all these, let's call them mechanisms inside the body. The innate immune system is the portion of the immune system, the segment of the immune system that, that rushes to the scene when there is an acute and immediate threat. And this is, the word often used is an insult. An insult to your body might be you stepping on a stick or getting a splinter. It might be the inhalation of a flu virus. It might be a, a, a bite of a cat that, lent, that brings either only tissue damage, skin derma damage, or that in, insinuates or enters a bacteria into your body and to the scene rush a bunch of cells. And those cells you can think of very fairly as your first responders. Interestingly, this is a quite violent affair. <laughs> I think of it as a really nasty combination of multi-car crash and five-alarm fire, where these cells are trying to assess and gobble up anything that is threatening. Can you kind of picture that? violent affair inside you oh absolutely in fact i had <laughs> i i actually had the image of like germany or or europe after world war ii and you know during world war ii and then afterwards doing the big cleanup and reconstruction yes all those are good metaphors and it's worth noting the reconstruction piece because if you've ever noticed when you get a wound the cut itself Oh, I'm thinking of one time I cut my finger on a tuna can. And in the days thereafter, the wound area appeared to broaden. As I think back to that, knowing what I know now, that's not strange at all. In effect, my innate immune system was clearing the area to allow the rebuilding of tissue. So how 
important is the immune system? Well, there, it's not only playing the defense role and the assessment role, the surveillance role, the spy role. It's also playing the janitorial role and a rebuilding role. But let's move to the adaptive immune system. Let us say that that thing that entered your body turns out to be a very problematic pathogen. Well, your generic response, as quick as it is, as effective as it is at some things, may not have the capacity to destroy the pathogen that has entered your body. And this is where evolution has provided us with a second layer. We can see through, you know, Darwinian testing that this thing's been around about 480 million years. We have been blessed with a second adaptive immune system. That's the second immune system. And this is filled with much more precision surgical strike special operations forces, if you will, that have the ability to attack the specific bacteria or virus based on its chemical makeup. Am I making a, as the distinction between the innate, I'm gonna get more into the adaptive, but just, just to make sure I'm being clear. Is the distinction clear between this innate immediate response and then the adaptive response that is more precise? Absolutely. Okay. So I think people have probably heard of T cells and B cells. The T cells and B cells, book goes into much more detail, but these are the generals and soldiers of the adaptive immune system, and they are marvelous. It boggles my mind, and even here, having written it, listened and learned about it, I still get a little shiver of marvel at what these things are capable of. Because inside our bodies, we come equipped with almost trillions of different combinations, certainly billions, of T cells and B cells that have the capacity to attack a very precise different pathogen. And I think I'm being a little obscure, so let me be more specific. Lots of pathogens in the world, lots of organisms are built just a little bit different from one another. And in order to fight them off, we need just the right T cell or B cell in order to attack them. Our bodies come equipped with an almost infinite variety of specialized T cells and B cells. When you get sick, I don't know if this sentence rings a bell, but it certainly resonated with me when I heard it from the scientists. You know how your doctor will sometimes say, well, Matt, it will take five to seven days for your body to respond. Does that ring a bell, having heard that before? Yeah, well, I just know that from my own experience that these things tend to take time and you have to suffer through it and you have to suffer through it. During that time is when your T cells and B cells, when your body is finding the right T cell or B cell to fight the flu or the infection, and then develop a kind of manufacturing capability 
to create multiple fighters to then course through the body and find the infection. So you've got your generic innate response that comes along and tries to contain the damage, and then you fuel up the adaptive response to go actually precision destroy the threat. And those are your two layers. Mm-hmm. I just loved, I was so engrossed in all of the little details of how each T-cell and B-cell interacted with these threatening or harmful pathogens and how they identified what was harmful and then how they somehow signaled the adaptive immune system that they needed this particular specific type of T-cell or B-cell and then the next step was, was the manufacturing of, a, of like a, an army a kind yes. of what you call a, a monocloning of all of these these soldiers to go in and wipe out the threat. Just in brief, if you picture, there's something called a dendritic cell. It's a little, it's almost like a messenger. And it is one of those cells that rushes to the scene and it bites off a piece, swallows a piece of that pathogen, the bacteria or threat or virus or parasite, and it carries it back to your lymphatic system, your lymph nodes. And it basically shops it around and it says to the T cell, hey, you ever seen anything like this before? And that takes some time. But when it comes across the right T cell, the T cell leaps to action as if it has waited its whole existence and it surely has for this moment. It's like, hey, you're up, pal, let's go. You know, get off the bench. You're up in the batting order. And off they go. Uh-huh. I just loved all of this. This was so fascinating. And maybe the next place to go with this is how does our immune system distinguish what is part of itself and what is other? And yeah. also what is a, an actual threat? Since you, you mentioned earlier that there's only a very, very, very tiny percentage of these bacteria and viruses and parasites that are actually a threat to us. You can almost think of it as a flow chart where the immune system has to make a series of decisions. It has to decide, is something a threat? How big of a threat? But then, to your point, is that a threat to ourself or to something else? Meaning, if you were to take an immune cell from your body, and let's just create a, a very simplistic artificial experimentation, and it identified a pathogen in a test tube attached to a cell that was not you, it might not attack the pathogen. It needs more than one piece of information because it is not interested in attacking a pathogen that is not attacking self. It is trying to preserve self. So it needs multiple pieces of information. One reason why this is so instructive is because it helps explain why it's taken so long to understand this. Each of these little discoveries, and I don't want to say little in the sense 
that they're modest discoveries, I mean these are happening at a molecular level, required incredible science. And they are built on decades upon decades of trial and error, brilliant effort. And again, you, you mentioned I go into the history. I don't belabor it, but I do go into the history because, because to understand each of these moments required a stroke of genius, each, each one along the way. Right. Everyone's collaborating in the putting together of this, like, trillion-piece puzzle. Yes, it is exactly that. People are, like, standing up going, I've got a corner piece. I don't know what it attaches to. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I can imagine a huge family at Thanksgiving, each with a bunch of puzzle pieces, discovering them, you know, around the house, like Easter meets Thanksgiving. <laughs> with a trillion pieces. That's a little bit what immunology was like. And, you know, it's for that reason, in part, that immunology, despite our na- our understanding now that it is kind of the center of the medical universe, was long a backwater because we just couldn't make these connections. Mm-hmm. Right. There was no way to get down to that molecular level with precision to really map it out and to understand what each molecule was doing. Right. That is exactly where we find ourselves, thankfully. So what I was getting to when I brought that issue of self and other up was how does our immune system actually distinguish what is self and what is other? So there are a couple of mechanisms, but one of them is, and now we're getting into some crazy language, um, there's something called the major histocompatibility complex. Whenever I hear the word histo, you know, I, I think about like the way we have like allergic reactions to things like either hay fever or specific foods. Yeah. L- let me just say something about the language really quick. The language of immunology is confusing to say the least. And I've tried to use some humor in the book to make it accessible. And I've tried to define some of this language and even the historians will tell you if you feel like wow these terms sound crazy to me even like historians will say the language is really even more odd and perverse than many scientific areas maybe the most pronounced is something called an antibody which people have heard of it sounds like it's antibody it's actually pro body <laughs> it's helping your body but So there's these concepts like the MHC. It's like a fingerprint. It's a very, very diverse genetic code that separates you as self. It's like your genetic fingerprint from anybody else. And it helps your immune system recognize what is you and what is other. May I just pause on this and give an interesting bit of trivia that shows how deeply entwined the immune system is in our essence, in our being, as it relates to this question of self and other? Please. There's a wonderful scientist I talked to, and this is what I'm going to describe as a little bit theoretical, but it stands to reason, and it's at least an interesting thought, that this scientist believes that the MHC, this thing that gives off self actually has a scent component to it and that one of its 
purposes, this is a German scientist, very well healed, believes that one of its purposes is to keep us from having incest because incest interferes with diversity. We need diversity. And his belief is that you can kind of sense someone else's MHC so that you don't reproduce with someone too close to you in underlying genetic or immune coding. Isn't that fascinating? I found that totally fascinating that we are instinctively programmed to be either attracted or repelled by certain sense and certain yes. certain genetic, certain biological things in our environment. And it's all for that, that expanding of diversity. Yes. And this is where, this is where I think at the very least, at the very, very least, it is instructing us about how deeply entwined the immune system is in our essence. Again, I don't want to validate or invalidate that theory because I think it's, you know, one particular um, hypothesis, but it just shows the possibilities and it's at least a viable thing to consider. And it's one of those pieces of the puzzle that actually at least seems to fit in the puzzle. Exactly. That's a better way of putting it. It, it, It's viable because it's consistent with what we're now understanding about how important this system is to everything. Mm -hmm. And so once the immune system determines that something that is a threat to our system has entered our body, it goes into response mode. And you, you described a little bit of that, but we tend to experience what we call inflammation and fevers and responses like that. And one of the fascinating things that I didn't really understand was that inflammation, when unchecked, is lethal. And this will actually help us enter into the next phase of our conversation. But could you talk about what inflammation is and what fever is? Yeah. So broadly... Fever is a subset of inflammation, and inflammation is the response of your immune system, in theory, to an insult. Remember, insult was this broad term that we were using to describe an injury or an infection. But inflammation doesn't always happen in response to an insult. And today, we can see with the rise of allergy, and the heavy prominence of autoimmune disorder, that inflammation, joint pain, fever, fatigue, stomach upset, these can all be expressions of inflammation not in response to an insult. This is where the balance between your bouncer and your ballet dancer has gotten out of balance. The bouncer is too powerful. Inflammation is an essential byproduct of fighting disease or insult, but it can get out of control, and much of the discomfort we feel is an overpowering inflammatory response. So this is a really key concept in understanding daily health, but also dynamics around virtually every disease from autoimmune disorder to cancer. The balance of the immune system must be intact. Inflammation and its absence are huge markers of disease. 
Yes, and this is where I would love for you to talk about what cancer and autoimmune disease are and how they affect the immune system. Okay. Would it be okay if I grounded this in a personal story that will explain cancer and its relationship to the immune system and then enter into this broader conversation? Absolutely. All right. So Jason was a friend of mine growing up in Colorado in Boulder, one of seven close-knit guys, six of myself in high school, and he was Mr. Everything. He was all-state baseball and all-state basketball and a great-looking guy who got all the girls. And fast forward many years, his charmed life took a, a pretty rough turn, and he came down with lymphoma, blood cancer, called Hodgkin's. And it's supposed to be curable through radiation and chemotherapy, but Jason was not cured. And about three-plus years into this really brutal treatment, he had 15 pounds of lymphoma in his back, doubling every few weeks. And his oncologist in Denver tearfully said, Jason, I love you, buddy, but it's time to go home and die. And off to hospice, Jason went. Well, this was the cusp, the beginning of this new era of medicine called immunotherapy. I'll get into the details a little bit more in a minute, but its aim very broadly is to stoke or accelerate the bouncer in your immune system. And Jason took an off-label, off-market version of this. And a few weeks later, his girlfriend woke him and said, Jason, get out of bed. Your tumor has disappeared. Boom. I'm a New York Times reporter, interested and versed in health and science. He's a buddy of mine. I picked up my pen and I said, what the heck is going on? So what the heck is going on? What is the next level here when it comes to cancer or autoimmune disorder, which turned out to be closely linked? Well, in Jason's case, what his cancer had done was something that a number of cancers that are effective are able to do. Big step back. What is cancer? Well, first of all, cancer is a very generic term for, let's take it out of the term of, you know, when we used to whisper like in a Woody Allen movie, he's got cancer. Let's take it out of that term. Cancer, very generically, is cell mutation. It's a mutation of your cells as they rebuild. And most of the time, those cancers either die of their own weight because they are so mutant, or the immune system recognizes them as alien as it would any other alien organism and destroys them. But occasionally, there's a cancer like the kind Woody Allen whispered about that begins to grow inside you. And those cancers are, let's call them effective cancers. They're effective because they have some mutations that make them very hardy. What we have now learned, and this is mind-blowing, is that one of the mutations some cancers have, and Jason's cancer had this, is that they send a message to the immune system that says, stand down, I'm self, I'm not alien. You with me? Yep. 
Now, why in the heck would the immune system have the ability to receive a message that says, stand down? Well, now, hopefully, it will make much more sense after what I've described to you previously in the conversation. But the reason is because the immune system is constantly trying to keep from being overpowering. And about half the molecules in the immune system, half the little nodes and nods and buttons and telecommunications receivers and antenna on the cells in the immune system are aimed at turning the volume down, are aimed at emphasizing ballet dancer over bouncer. An effective cancer sends a message that says, hey, bouncer, don't mind me. In fact, why don't you even help create an environment where I can grow? So cancer, when effective, has co-opted, duped, and played a magic trick on your immune system. I'm breathing because I want to make sure I'm not being long-winded. <laughs> no, that was perfect because it, it totally sets us up for autoimmune disease. <laughs> yes. So by contrast, and incidentally, what Jason's immunotherapy drug did was took the break off the immune system so that it could go do what it was intended to do in the first place. But now here comes autoimmune disorder. Who in the world would think autoimmune disorder is in some ways the opposite side of the coin of cancer? I mean, that just, again, here's the sound of my head exploding as I learn all this stuff. But in autoimmune disorder, which is rampant and much more prevalent in women, if we want to get into why that is, we can. But this is where the bouncer becomes overpowering. Rather than having its brakes put on, it's a little bit accelerated. The bouncer and the ballet dancer are in an imbalance and your own tissue becomes a source of attack. And it is an extremely painful, real, difficult, vexing experience. I feel so much for people who deal with excessive inflammation. And I will say, as I've gotten to do this book and talk to many people, it is rampant. Your immune system is just a touch out of balance and you are paying a hefty price. So talk about the mechanisms involved in the autoimmune dysfunction and what's happening in the body and how the immune system is responding. We talked about earlier that inflammation unchecked is lethal. Yes. And you've presented the metaphor of the bouncer and the ballet dancer. And something that just occurred to me is that autoimmune disease, when it runs rampant, is kind of like the body subjecting itself to chemotherapy when there's nothing there. I think about this as the invisible sufferers because there's no pathogen to point to. And when you say what is the mechanism, the truthful answer is we are still really trying to understand that. 
And we are at a moment in time where we've got a shot to be able to do it. But it is very new to us to understand how these molecules work. And it is even newer for us to try to understand what is setting them off. So when you talk about the mechanism, there's a couple of ways to think about it. One is what sets it off in the first place? And then there's the mechanism of what is happening. And the mechanism of what is happening is, say in the case of rheumatological experience, rheumatoid arthritis, your immune cells, you are experiencing inflammation around the joints as if your body was trying to attack something, but that something is not there. In the book, there are two women, Linda and Meredith, and there's some really provocative photos of Linda's hands. She was a very high achiever, one time a professional golfer who won the Ulster Open, which is the equivalent of the Irish Open now. And when you see her hands, you will just go, whoa, they are ballooned up. In the case of Meredith, who is another autoimmune disorder sufferer, you can't see this photo in the book, but I described the experience. I once went with her as she exposed one hand to the sun and kept one in the shade. And for whatever reason, sun exposure causes an instant inflammation and rash in her hand as her immune system cascades there, rushing to attack something that is of no threat. Now, why is this happening? So I want to talk a little bit about why women suffer so disproportionately with one general point here. Genetics play a huge role in determining autoimmune disorder. And it's also a, probably a good time to pause and make a note about allergy, which is a cousin of autoimmune disorder. Allergy is the overreaction of an immune system to something that is alien to us, but not necessarily a threat, like pollen or peanuts. Those aren't necessarily a threat to us, but our immune system is overreacting to their presence. And it causes inflammation that can be very dangerous. And as people know who suffer from severe allergies, even deadly. That is the inflammation that is causing the threat, the swelling of your throat, not the pathogen that appeared in the first place, or rather the not pathogen that appeared in the first place. But let's talk about autoimmunity and women. So women are hit disproportionately by this. I think of them, I mentioned earlier, as invisible sufferers. I think of them historically as the invisible women because society was often very dismissive of people when they would come in, women, when they would say, I have pain, I have fatigue, I have low-grade fever. You could imagine an oft-heard phrase, maybe it's in your head. Well, it wasn't, as I've been saying lately, because I, I just want to express my sympathy here. Just because it's invisible doesn't mean it's not real. There was no pathogen, but the symptoms were very real. And so it made a double whammy for the sufferers who not only could not find a pathogen inside of them, but then felt dismissed by society. Women 
suffer disproportionately, and there are theories as to why. Again, we are learning. This is in the book. But one of the women who leads the field, uh, a woman who's the, a leading rheumatologist in the field around the country, was explaining to me that one reason appears to be because women at baseline have a stronger immune system than do men. And it stands to reason for a variety of explanations. One is that women confer immunity to children through gestation, through breast milk, through breastfeeding. They have historically been caregivers. They have more fat cells, which can mean more immune cells overall. There's some good news in this, which is that they live longer. That may be a part of the equation. But it also means that the balance of their bouncer and ballet dancer can get more easily tipped in favor of the bouncer. Ladies, it is of no solace, I assume, that you have a tougher bouncer inside of you than do us men. And that can be apparently one of the reasons why women suffer disproportionately. Then there can be catalysts, and I want to be really careful to caveat what I'm about to say. There is no reason why anyone should feel they are bringing these illnesses, these autoimmune disorders upon themselves. So please, please recognize that what I'm about to say is not meant to suggest that. But there is some evidence that certain events like having a virus, in the case of Linda, the, the golfer that I mentioned, she was a very hard driving person. She did not sleep much. She even got strep and didn't get it treated. She had kids, and in her effort to stay at the top of her career was like taking conference calls when they were newborns in the back of her car, and she would be the first to tell you that she pushed herself so hard just prior to the onset of her autoimmune disorder that it is possible she got her immune system out of balance. In the case of Meredith... Again, no blame here by any stretch. She suffered some pretty significant trauma, including a rape. And there are ideas that these can dysregulate an immune system already predisposed. But look, many, many people, and I know many of them, they're in my family, they're everywhere, have no such catalysts and suffer autoimmune disorders. And that can just be because of the relative power of the bouncer to the ballet dancer in women. Okay, so you've touched on some of the causes, and that's where I'd like to go, is why these diseases like cancer and autoimmune disorders have become so prevalent and literally exploded in recent decades. Well, curiously, there's a good news side of that, (laughs) which is that... They've exploded in part because we are living longer and have done away with some of the most lower-hanging fruit that would kill us previously. So if you think of the wonder of whether vaccine or antibiotics in doing away with things like smallpox or polio or antibiotics that allow us to address E. coli or pneumonia, We are living past the point where some lower-hanging fruit killed us. And that means that 
there's a chance for our bodies, our immune systems, to have the kind of longevity that allows them to get out of balance. There's a lot of thinking expressed in this book as it moves into its more philosophical and existential conclusions that the immune system is aimed at getting us mostly through reproductive age and a little bit beyond, but then has as a core principle the salvation of the species, not the individual. What do I mean by that? What I mean is cancers and autoimmune disorders may be a product of us outliving what the immune system once contemplated our usefulness to be. I realize how crass that sounds, but it is scientific truth, and the value of scientific truth is it lets us then decide how we want to live and how we want to address ourselves. There are other reasons why we might be seeing the rise of a variety of threats. And that can be because our immune system is encountering a lot of inputs over time, over the course of our lives, that are foreign. So in the case of cancers, maybe the most obvious no-brainer of all threats is smoking. That presents a whole bunch of carcinogenic, noxious, foreign entities that our immune system must respond to that allow for malignancy to occur and mutation to occur that then allows for more potentially cancerous cells. We don't know enough about processed foods yet, although there are foreign elements to that as well, but we do know that obesity, which often can be a byproduct of heavy processed food production, leads to an imbalance in our immune system, sometimes inflammation, sometimes cancer, sometimes heart disease. So as we live longer and interact with less natural inputs, I suppose, I guess you could call a cigarette a natural input, sort of, but I don't think we were really meant to inhale that much ash. So I guess I should pause there before you get nasty calls and letters from people saying, yes, but I'm only inhaling tobacco plant. So those are some of the reasons. Yeah, but it's burnt tobacco plant. And, and in the book, you describe how these foreign elements, as they enter into our lungs, cause multiple problems that our immune system have to deal with continually over and over and over again. And, and the odds are that over time, problems are going to arise. There's more chance of cellular mutations to occur that will eventually be malignant. And, and the same effect occurs from various pollutants in the environment. So so our modern life is full of these stresses, whether they're physical stresses or emotional and psychological stresses. Yeah. Just to go back to smoking and some of these chemicals, it's just math. Eventually, you will get cancer. But I do want to say our modern life is in many ways a blessing we have clean water, we have sewage systems that are sparing us the low-hanging fruit or sparing us death from the low-hanging fruit. And I think where we find ourselves now is in a period of refinement. How much can we take the advances we've made and fine-tune them such that we get the very best out of our lives such that we can live the healthiest, longest lives within the context of what we're learning. 
I suppose in some ways that's the aim of this book, to help us find the narrowest path, the healthiest path, to take advantage of the science and not be taken advantage of by false promise or marketing. My guest, Matt Richtel, is a writer, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist, and the author of An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System, A Tale in Four Lives. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick. You talk about finding that delicate balance and not overdoing it like sanitiz- over-sanitizing. Exactly. That's like a perfect example of how we may actually be harming our ability to keep our immune systems functioning optimally. Going back to the very first part of this conversation, all those microbes in our surroundings help train our immune system, and they keep it healthy and in balance. And when we over-sanitize our environment, when we goop up our kids every time they touch a banister, We're not only killing the few potentially noxious microbes, we're killing an entire environment that is teaching the bouncer and the ballet dancer how much to react, under what circumstances, and when to withhold or tiptoe or pirouette. And so that's a case where we've overcorrected, understandably given our primitive past, but now we know better. And this reminds me of, this actually takes us close to the end of the book, where you talk about what the grand lesson of the immune system is. And I think this, it relates to this in that we, we are integral parts of our environment and we're continually interacting with it and we have a lot to learn from it. And as you said, our immune system learns a lot from the bacteria and viruses and parasites that it gets to encounter. And that helps us in our ability to thrive and to survive in an optimal way. Yeah. And pass that information down the genetic line. Exactly. So, and I thought where you might be going, and I'll just, I'll take a leap there, but just as the immune system is learning from our environment, I think... One of the twists and turns I discovered in this book, maybe the biggest of all, is that the immune system, because of its longevity and success, has a lot to teach us about the best ways to live. It has been around 480 million years going back to the shark. A system that's successful has lessons to impart to us. And at the end of the book, I won't give them away here, but I try to, I I audaciously title a chapter, The Meanings of Life. Um, So I'm laughing at myself, don't don't worry, I don't think I I imagine myself that much of a sage. But um, the immune system does have some meanings of life to tell us, and that's where the book winds up. And actually, even beyond that, you have a chapter titled The Meaning of Jason. Yes. Um, Am I allowed to withhold the meaning of Jason in hopes that we have enticed people to get to the uh, surprise conclusion of this book? Absolutely. I'm I'm with you there. So let's, let's talk about how the immune system actually correlates with, with human society. 
Yeah. So we haven't talked about, we mentioned Jason and the two, the two women with autoimmune disorders. There's also a man in here named Robert Hoff who has a kind of a perfect immune system such that it gets studied by the National Institutes of Health. And I will leave that for the book, but I will say that he has a lesson to teach us that you're getting at, and that is this. As a defense network, the immune system has survived and allowed us to survive as individuals and as a species by being the better part caution, not aggression. Aggression, when necessary, in as limited and strategic a fashion as possible. And it teaches us, above all, not only the value of cooperation, but this next part is so critical, the value of diversity. And the reason for that is, on multiple levels, one, if we did not have diverse immune systems, we would all have been killed by the same plague or pandemic. We need a huge diversity of genetic material to survive. But culturally, had it not been for the diversity of the scientists from all over the world that brought us to this point of understanding, we would not be saving lives by the thousands. The lesson of the immune system and of its science is that cooperation, harmony, and extreme violence only in the most necessary and strategic fashions is the way that a system survives, an individual survives, and a species survives. Yes, and you actually talk about how bigotry and nationalism are, are like forms of autoimmune disease. I, I think of, I, I make the, the example that Nazism, just to pick an apolitical version of this is an extreme case of an autoimmune disorder where a nation in an effort to quote unquote purify itself of the alien destroyed itself as no nation ever has or as few ever have and you can see countless examples where we mistake self as alien and undo ourselves societally in the process. Yes, and in this particular metaphor, you could say that this type of autoimmune disorder becomes a form of cancer. You, you can say that it is as destructive that the internal force used to cleanse self called alien becomes as dangerous as any actual alien presence there could ever be. There is a thing called a cytokine storm. This is a deadly expression of inflammation that happens when the immune system gets out of control. Sometimes with these immunotherapy drugs it can happen and people who might be saved otherwise are destroyed by their own immune system, absolutely made into a kind of puree by their immune system. We have got to be cautious societally not to create a cytokine storm under the guise of destroying the alien.
And unfortunately, that seems to be the cliff that we seem to be dangling over the edge of nationally. Well, I just want to say here, my goal is I, I try to stay away from the politics because I believe this. I don't want to sound too defensive of it, but this science applies to everybody, wherever you are on the side of the aisle. But I would say that there's lots of demonizing people do of one another in our society, wherever they are. I take a very journalistic approach. And when we demonize each other, when we attack each other and we're overzealous, we are behaving as if an immune cell that is lost its ballet dancer. Mm -hmm. I agree with you that, that it occurs on both sides of the aisle. And also, we tend to have similar responses to new ideas as well. To new ideas. In fact, one of the interesting things that I learned in this book is, just to pull this out of the political realm, because it's everywhere, the scientists who made brilliant advances in this book were often vilified by science as alien because their new ideas were threats to the existing ones. So, you know, one of the lessons I've tried to think about is use my emotional and intellectual bouncer judiciously. Make sure my ballet dancer is full in effect. Mm -hmm. And maybe we could end by getting back to the immunotherapy and recognizing that while this is a, a very promising new development in medical technology, there are side effects to it, and we are very much in the early stages of it. And considering that many people are going to be dealing with cancer and autoimmune issues and going to see their doctors, and their doctors are not necessarily going to be up on the latest yeah. science about this, how, how can people best utilize this information I'm glad you brought it back to that because I want to say for all the theoretical stuff we've talked about, I wrote this book. I was Jason's, I am Jason's friend. I was Jason's friend. I wrote this book having in mind that it is for anybody with disease, a family member, especially people dealing with somebody with autoimmune disorders in their lives to help them understand this but disease broadly, and I want to say that in the book offers some of the kinds of questions that you should pose, ask of yourself and your physician when you seek these modern cutting-edge treatments. In the case of cancer, what are my risks when I empower my immune system? In the case of autoimmune disorders, what are my risks when I put the brakes on this? Might I face a greater vulnerability to infection? Might I face some other challenges? I wish for empowered consumers and patients. I hope an elegant defense provides that. Matt Richtel is a writer, Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times journalist, and the author of this fascinating new book, An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System, A Tale in Four Lives. Matt Rictel, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful and highly enlightening. Thank you so much for having me and for great questions and interaction. I'm grateful. Mm. Okay. Mm. Okay.
Hi, Kate. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I really love the book. And welcome to the show. Kate T. Parker is a photographer and the author of The Heart of a Boy, Celebrating the Strength and Spirit of Boyhood. Your previous book is Strong is the New Pretty, a celebration of girls being themselves. And both of these books are full of beautiful snapshots of boys and girls, essentially just being themselves. Exactly. What inspired you to create your first book, Strong is the New Pretty? Strong is the New Pretty started really small and personally for me. I'm a mom of two girls. And I started taking pictures of my girls in their daily life. I wanted to really just get better as a photographer. And I noticed that the images that were the strongest, the ones that I took, were the ones where my girls were truly being themselves. And for them, this came through as emotional, messy. Their hair was mostly unbrushed. They were loud and muddy and fearless and not necessarily smiling for the camera. And I wanted my girls to know that that was enough. They didn't need to change who they were, clean up smile for me. And that was the start of Strong is New Pretty. And I expanded that project of just my girls to girls all over North America and girls whose strengths look different from my girls, girls who inspired and girls who persevered. So why, why did you like taking pictures of them basically as they were in their natural way, rather than, let's say, primping them up or getting them to mm-hmm. pose? Well, I live in Atlanta, so I live in the South, and a lot of imagery, a lot of photographs of little girls that I would see, you know, they had dresses on, they looked perfect, they had big bows in their hair, their hair was brushed and curled, and my girls did not look like this. They didn't want to look like that, and I didn't want them to feel that they had to, to be accepted or to be beautiful or to be celebrated, so I just started intentionally shooting my girls for the things that they love to do, which was, you know, play soccer or make mud pies in the creek behind our house or climb a tree. I wanted them to know that they didn't have to be, you know, that this little box that we all put around girls and boys, that they didn't need to stay in there. They could go out of that box and that they were still beautiful and that we still loved them. Mm. As a father of a girl, I totally feel the same way. And that's really why I love this concept of yours and really, really loved all the photographs of girls on your website. And I read in your book that you were very reluctant to do this book about boys. Why were you so mm-hmm. reluctant to do that? And what changed your mind? Oh, that's, that's a really good question. Like, I did not see the need for this book at first for boys. I was afraid of abandoning the girls and all of the girls that little girls that read the book that that thought that they were powerful and strong i thought oh if i do a book about boys next i'm abandoning all those girls but every single talk that i would go to or everything i did i would always get that question when are you going to do a book about boys when does that one come out and then my publisher asked me the same question and i honestly did not think we needed this i thought our boys were doing fine i don't have boys I hadn't spent a lot of quality time with boys one-on-one. So I was like, no, you all are fine. Our girls are the ones that need this message of acceptance of self, and boys are fine. And then I, my, when my publisher asked me the question, I was like, I'll try. I will, I will do, like, a couple of test shots 
like fully expecting to not think it was necessary, like whatever I believed was true. And then I thought I'd come back and say, oh, no, let's do Strong as a New Pretty too." And as soon as I started shooting and doing research and talking with parents of boys, reading about boys and masculinity, I immediately realized how much this is needed because the definition of what's accessible for a girl is pretty narrow. But for a boy, it's even more narrow. So I wanted these images in this book to help expand that definition. Talk more about how, you know, the expectation for boys is is even more narrow than girls. Because we we generally have this sense that boys and men are not lacking in -hmm. their ability to express themselves in our culture. But that's not really true, is it? No, I mean, I feel like the expectations that are heaped on the shoulders of our boys are enormous. You need to be strong. You need to be a leader. Be confident, athletic. Can't be weak. You can't be emotional. You can't cry. And I was insensitive to the fact that our boys are suffering. They're suffering differently than our girls. But without that voice and support that girls have, I mean, there are a ton of books like Strong as a Pretty. But when my publisher was looking to compare, like, for Heart of a Boy, like, oh, how many copies of a book like this have sold? you know, just to know how many for them to order, they couldn't find one. There was not another similar book. They had to use Strong as New Pretty. And I feel like we're just starting this conversation with our boys, and I'm so thankful and, and glad that I kind of woke up to the fact that this is needed. Yes, conversations. There are a lot of conversations that are popping up in our society around girls and women, like Me Too and Unequal Pay and you know, mm-hmm. the, the narrow box that girls and women have been or expected to be. But these conversations about men are so important. Are you seeing conversations emerging mm-hmm. now? I think the conversation about what defines masculinity and how do we raise our sons to become good people and what, what does a boy look like? What does he act like? And, and taking away that box of it's only these three things that you can be and showing with my photography and with my images that, look, boyhood looks, it looks a million different ways, and all of those ways are okay, and all of those ways we should celebrate. And so I wanted boys that could be themselves, boys that were strong in what they loved and who they were and that didn't necessarily look like everybody else. And I wanted, I wanted boys that could inspire and boys that, that other boys picking up the book could relate to. There's one little boy in the book who says um, something to the effect that I just want to be me and just be myself. <laughs> and, yeah. and that is, is so hard to find in the old paradigm of our male-dominated culture. Yeah, I think it's a really, really important. And, and we need to take a look at those expectations we have and for girls and for boys because... You know, boys can be football players. They can be tough as nails on the field, but they can also be like tenderhearted and emotional off. And being both is possible. And that each of those qualities does not cancel each other out because we all are many things. We're complicated and rich. And for boys, it's often this really simple view of what's expected and what's desired from them. And I feel like that's what I would like to try and change or, or alter or shift a little bit. Yes, and I think about the consequences and the cost to our society of not giving 
girls and boys the opportunity to really be who they are in a much broader sense. Yeah, I think that is sort of on us as the adults to allow our kids and allow the younger, you know, our younger people to fully experience what it means to be human, however that looks for them, and to celebrate it. Because then as they grow up, if we allow our boys to be who they are, we allow our girls to be who they are, they will celebrate it and see it in each other and allow it in each other. And then it kind of creates this change and shift generationally. As they grow up, they're not asking each other to be something they're not. Yes, but there are people, parents in our culture, who are afraid of what some of their girls and boys are expressing and, and being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think, though, that sometimes our role as adults and sometimes our role as parents is to simply clear the path for our kids to be who they are. Because, I mean, we all want that. Like, being celebrated for who we are and being loved for who we are without, you know, without conditions. I think just clearing that path and saying, I'm going to let you lead the way a little bit right now. You know, obviously with boundaries, but allowing our kids to know that at their core, that they are worthy and that they're loved is really the key. Mm -hmm. You have various chapters in the book relating to strength, vulnerability, play, and kindness. I'm wondering if there are any particular stories of boys that you encountered and photographed that particularly inspired and moved you. Oh, yeah. There's this one set of brothers that was here. I'm in Atlanta that are named Javi and Jerry. And when Javi was born, he was in the NICU. So he was, I think he might have been a premature. He was in there for months. And understandably, Jerry, his older brother, was in around the hospital a lot. And he saw a lot of other parents, just like his mom and dad, suffering and worried about their kids who were sick. I think he was maybe seven at the time, decided he wanted to help. He wanted to help some of those parents. So he started saving his allowance and paying for other parents' food in the hospital cafeteria. He'd wait near the cash register and, like, sneak in and use his money to pay for their meals. And... Now, I think Javi is seven, and so Jerry's 14, and he still goes back every single year at the holidays to do the same thing, and he started a charity to raise money so he could just kind of pay it forward to as many families as possible. I was just kind of floored by the kindness and that sort of foresight to to recognize, yes, his parents are suffering, but these other parents are suffering too, so I want to help in any way I can. So there's a couple of things that are really wonderful, I think, that really connect to that because that's like a boy opening up a whole new door of possibility of the way they can be in the world and and what they can contribute and how they can really feel good about themselves in relation to the world around them. And you write something in the book, kids haven't been conditioned to think of a stick as just a stick. It can be a fishing rod a magic wand, a pencil, a conductor's baton. And you also wrote another wonderful line that creativity can be a simple shift in perspective that makes something previously impossible possible. And I think mm-hmm. this is what you're really pointing to or, you, or you're allowing these, these kids to, to reveal to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's, there's so many possibilities if we just allow them to take the lead and figure out what works 
and what can they imagine and, and who do they want to be, I think that they know and that we need to take a step back once in a while as adults and, and parents to let them determine where they go. Right, because we may not even have any idea of what they need to do or what the world really needs that they may be able to step in and offer. Exactly. That's, yeah, exactly right. Yes, and especially in in our world today with, with the incredible crises that we're facing that we obviously don't seem to be getting a handle on or being able to do anything about, it's going to be up mm-hmm. to our kids because it's their world. You know, it's more their world than it is our world. Yes. And they're, they're really the only ones who can solve this problem if we can just get out of their way. Exactly, yeah. It's hard as a parent to understand that. Sometimes that's, that's the very best thing that you can do for your kids is just get out of the way. We have a tendency to think that we know better, that old thing, father knows best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a really yeah. limiting and, and potentially destructive paradigm. Exactly, yeah. And I, yeah, I think now is the time to start making those changes. You know, start that conversation and start changing the way in which we view our boys and our girls. And there's another really important thing, the, the issue of vulnerability, boys being vulnerable. I grew up on the streets of New York City, and I was a very sensitive kid, and I often felt very vulnerable and unsafe, and that it was not okay to be the way I was. And, mm-hmm. and that can be so limiting to our ability to deal with our emotional state. Can you talk about how boys, you know, the the challenge that boys have in dealing with their emotions considering the culture that we've been raised in? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are all of these rules that are just inherent in being a boy that, you know, you can't be weak, you can't be emotional, not allowed to cry. And I think that, you know, if you are not able to, and if you're conditioned at such an early age to not access your emotions, it's really detrimental because there is a strength and a power in understanding your emotions and knowing knowing them. Like It helps you know yourself. And so allowing our boys to feel and experience that whole facet of what it means to be human is really the goal, is allowing them to feel and to experience all of it and not sequester certain aspects of their personality because they don't work well with, oh, you're a boy, you're not emotional. You might be, and that's okay, and that's a powerful thing. We just have to, you know, let's talk about it. Let's figure out how to make this work. I think that's just a huge conversation that needs to be starting. Yes, I totally agree, and I think this world desperately needs that. So how Mm -hmm. how do you approach taking these photographs of children? What are you looking for, and what do you ask of them? And are there questions that you ask? them as you're taking pictures or do you or do you separate the two the asking of of questions and conversations that you have with them and the photography well generally i feel very lucky in, in what i get to do is i find what these kids whether it's strong as you pretty or the heart of a boy i'm shooting these kids doing the thing that they are most passionate about it's the thing they love and they are really proud so throughout the whole process of shooting and sometimes it's really quick like it is 20 minutes at the most like I'm pretty quick with getting these stories and but throughout the whole thing I'm talking to these kids and I'm finding out more about them and 
I'm usually asking them to do something like, are we playing chess or are you running around or are you painting? I want them in action. I feel like that helps keep it as authentic as possible. And I sometimes get the quotes and, and what their voices are that accompany the pictures in the book. I sometimes get them during the shoot, but most of the time we get them after I send a questionnaire and they have a little more time to think about what they want to say and, and how they want to express themselves. So that's, that's generally the process. And do kids generally like being photographed and, and asked these questions? Yeah, I think that because they're usually doing the thing that they are really good at and they're confident that they are excited that I'm there to capture it because they feel proud of themselves. And honestly, if it was any other way, if, like, if a kid was embarrassed or didn't want to do it or didn't feel comfortable, I wouldn't want to be there. I don't want to... I don't want to push somebody to be part of a book where they might be embarrassed by it. Or I want everybody who's part of these projects to be proud and excited to be part of it. I don't want anybody sort of feeling that they got forced or tricked or anything into it. Mm -hmm. My guest has been Kate T. Parker. She's a photographer and the author of The Heart of a Boy, Celebrating the Strength and Spirit of Boyhood. Her previous book is Strong is the New Pretty, a celebration of girls being themselves. It's been wonderful talking with you. Could you give us your website? Sure. It's katetparker.com. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.